0: Hello and welcome to Going Wild in the Highlands. This is a show about all things nature in the highlands. My name's Floss. When I first started going out into the bush a long time ago now, I had lots of friends around me who knew stuff. They were fantastic. They explained to me what I was seeing and what I was hearing. They were able to tell me whose poo I'd just trod in. And it really helped me to enrich my understanding of what I was seeing and the beauty of the bush in the highlands. And I'm hoping to pass some of that on to you. I'm going to be talking with my friend, Lou. Uh, So Lou, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you want
1: to achieve with the show. Well, yeah, I want to encourage everyone to get out there and... It doesn't have to be very far. You can walk down your street, be in your garden or go into the bush and just stop and listen and look and you will find so much going on if you just give nature a chance to to be there for you. It seems so strange that we are so busy and yet we don't really listen to what's going on beyond our own human species a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah.
0: So... Today we're going to talk about uh, things that are happening through the seasons, what's happening since the winter solstice. We're going to have a look at places you can take your dog for a walk. We'll talk about the things that you'll see and hear while you're out there walking with your dog. We're hoping to cover a lot. We'll see how we go. So... (laughs) You would think a show about nature is pretty challenged in the middle of winter. It's hard work at the moment. But uh, so
1: much happens in winter, actually. You, you, it, again, you know, uh, look look at the situation with the, our gardens. I mean, I've got a mostly native garden. And the banksias are just absolutely glorious all through winter. They just really bring so much colour into the place. And then the banksias bring in the birds, especially the The eastern spinebill, which is my favourite bird, such a clever bird. And so you think winter's nothing, nothing happens up here in the highlands. And it is true, it's dark and it's cold. But the longest night is the 22nd of June or 21st of June. And then things start to really speed up. And I've really noticed it looking around. Have you noticed it too, Floss? Yes, it's true. After
0: the 21st of June or 22nd, the the birds and animals seem to think that spring has started. Nobody's told them that our seasons don't really want spring to happen until September. Spring's really happening out there already for the birds. Uh, I've been seeing ravens doing all sorts of nesting activity and they do this strange thing where they're flying around carrying uh, sticks in their uh, beaks of course for nesting but also I see them a lot carrying bread do you how you see yes her? I don't know
1: what's going on in my neighborhood it's very weird um I see them bringing in bread and putting it in the um bird bath wetting it up so it's nice and munchable I suppose and something's going on somebody around here is got it's selling a lot of bread to our our crows (laughs) I don't know what's going on but yeah they're very active and um, they seem to be sorting themselves out as well you know they're very intelligent birds and um, sometimes they get into our tall mountain grey gums just next door and there's like 12 of them and they've all got a voice they're all carrying on And something going on. I wish I could speak crow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Another sign of spring that I heard about recently was one of my friends who knows stuff down in
1: Penrose has seen an echidna train. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. I'd love to see that. So uh, explain to me, Floss, exactly how that works.
0: Uh, No, I think actually we should almost do a competition about who knows the most about echidnas because... I've been looking into them, and I'm not sure that you have. Uh, So I reckon I could win this competition. Oh, yeah. An interesting um, subject or an interesting feature of echidnas is that their back legs, their feet face backwards. And apparently in the early days, uh, people who were doing... um, what's called taxidermy, when they were presented with specimens of echidnas, they would turn the feet around because they couldn't believe that the feet (laughs) should face backwards, but they do.
1: And they're really sort of weird animals in that they lay eggs. They're marsupials, but they lay eggs, yes? That's right. They're called
0: monotremes. They belong to the same family as platypus. And I think they're the only two members of that family. I think so so their breeding season is June to October and what happens is uh, when she's ready to mate, the female, she must p- produce a, f- a pheromone or something and the male echidnas all flock to her and create a line behind her and this is called an echidna train and the line or the trail of males behind her can last for weeks. There, And always- how many
1: are in the train? I've read that you can get up to thirteen victims in a train. And what are they doing? All jostling for the front row. I mean, to get right up. They close are. They and all want
0: proximity to her, and she just waits to see who's got the most stamina, who lasts the longest, and who hangs on. Uh, I saw a echidna last year in September walking along the path in um, Exeter, and he was a man with a mission. I reckon that he'd gotten onto the scent of a female. And he was looking to enter a train. Anyway, after um, they have mated, some male has been successful. The female does produce an egg and that stays in her little pouch for I think it's about 10 days before it hatches. And then the echidna, what's the name for a baby echidna, Luke?
1: Is it a pug?
0: A puggle, that's puggle. right. Puggle, a puggle, that's it. The puggle stays in her pouch for about seven weeks And she doesn't have teats, she has what they call a milk patch and she produces pink milk and the puggle suckles on that. Is that because babies like pink? (laughs) I believe it's because it's full of protein. Right. When the puggle gets to seven weeks, it starts to get a bit prickly.
1: Yes, she wouldn't want it in the pouch too long, eh? She
0: She doesn't want it on the pouch, Mm. in the pouch thereafter, so it gets ejected somehow or it chooses to make its way in the world and off it goes.
1: Okay, so they're doing it right now, these males. I mean, really, I think the female echidnas ought to start a Me Too campaign. Really. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit outrageous, 13 males. Outrageous.
0: Yeah. Mm. So, yes, echidnas think it's spring too. Uh, what are the signs of the beginnings of spring? Are we
1: seeing the wattles are out? Well, yes, they... St- I heard something about Wattle's quite interesting because we're coming up for National Wattle Day, aren't we? And um, I was thinking, oh, I don't think, I think it's in September. And I was thinking, well, it really ought to be in July because if you go down (coughs) to the Morton National Park right now, here in Bundanoon, I tell you, the place is absolutely startlingly yellow, and it's like the sun's come out on the ground. <laughs> and it, they're all sunshine wattle. Well, they're not all sunshine wattles. There's about five or six species. Um, but the sunshine wattles are the ones that are blindingly bright. And um, someone told me that the National um, Wattle Day has been moved to September, but it did used to be much earlier. Oh, when really? It was, yeah. So um, when it was New South Wales. I think it was in late July or early August. I can't all remember. Right. So, But it, anyhow, um, wattles are out all year long, really, aren't they? But they're beautiful.
0: Well, that, I was going to ask you that because you're the flower girl. Is it true that somewhere in Australia there's a wattle flowering every day of the year?
1: I'm sure there is. I'm <laughs> sure there is. Well, I, I can't answer like that question that. for abs, I, Your Honour. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure that I can ma- manage to... Um, you know, be held to that. But look at all the wattles. What are there? There are about seven hundred species. Oh wow!
0: Yeah.
1: You know, a lot of them out there in uh in in, in central Queensland, in central Australia,
0: aren't yes, there? Yes, yeah,
1: that's All true. the mulgas and all those sorts of things, gidgee, and all those um desert wattles. Oh right, yeah. So well, I'm sure uh, there.
0: Let's. Bring the discussion back to the Highlands. This is a show, Lou. All oh, about yes. Nature in the Highlands. Well, my mind can travel. <laughs> so I know that you've fairly recently got a dog and you've been grumbling that you can't get out and about in the bush. Can't get in the no. national parks. That's the sad thing. That's right. But there are plenty of places where you can take your dog in the bush. I've been doing some research on your behalf. And I've found a few. There, there are many. We'll talk about a few today. So, one of my favourites is the Picton Fire Trail, or some people call it the Bargo Weir Fire Trail, which is up off Remembrance Drive in Tarmor. This is a fantastic place to walk your dog. It's nice and broad, easy to walk. You know, more than one person alongside each other, and plenty of room for dogs. It follows the Bargo River up to the Bargo weir. it apparently goes for five kilometers in or five and a bit. I haven't ever got to the end of it, although I really must. Uh, It's a lovely walk and along that walk I've seen rock warblers and I've heard some superb lyrebirds, which we must talk about too because again, as a result of the... um, Winter solstice. The superb lyrebirds are entering their mating season.
1: Well, but they they seem to love winter. Actually, that I, I'm amazed by, by, you know, what miserable weather they like to mate in. But there we are.
0: <laughs> That's true. They do. They like dark, dark, damp
1: gullies,
0: wet, wet areas. That's right. Mm. We'll come back to them perhaps a little bit later. So uh, another place to walk your dog, close to the centre of the Highlands, is Gibbogania Reserve, which is up off Howard's Lane, uh, out of Mittagong Welby. A perfect place for getting lost. <laughs> that's right. There are a lot of tracks up there. If anyone's going to set out for Gibbogania Reserve, I recommend that you take a map with you or take a photo of the the map. That's at the bottom of the reserve before you get in up there it's a walk that's not so much for the faint-hearted it's a little steep, bit steep isn't it it's steep, steep and rocky from yes. particularly from that side you can also access it from the barrel side I've just forgotten the name of the road you can get to get into it on that goes side. up
1: the side of a golf course I remember
0: that's right yeah that's but, steep
1: too all the, yeah <laughs> but only the first part uh, fortunately yes yeah, so once
0: you get up the top yeah. it's really it's lovely mm. and. Again, there's plenty of nature happening up there. That's uh, when spring has progressed a little bit further. That's, that's a really great place for wildflowers and butterflies and insects. I see heaps of them up there. So I recommend that. And then in the more southern aspects of the highlands, I learned, I didn't know this before, that you can walk your dogs in state forests. I don't know where you've been
1: living. <laughs> You must be under a rock. Of course, <laughs> forests is one of and Now that I cannot go in national parks, I look at forests everywhere to see, you know, where I can take the dog. Forests are very good that way. Yes.
0: And so down the southern end, we've got uh, Penrose State Forest. We've got Wingelo State Forest. Is that yes, right? yes. And Belangalow State Forest. Uh, all great places to take your dog. And I think that you told me that... Oh, it- Belangelo,
1: yes. That's a great birding spot. And do you know what a friend told me? She goes walking with a walking group. And she- they came across emu eggs. Oh, my goodness. Can In you believe Belangolo. that? In Belangelo Forest. Oh,
0: wow. Uh,
1: no male was there, no, no, no adult, because the males, of course, are the ones that sit on the eggs and raise the young. Which is quite mm, unusual right. amongst birds, um, but they were, you know, that beautiful pearly dark blue. So they were definitely viable eggs with oh, chicks wow. inside of them. So maybe he was just off having yeah, a munch. I hope he's
0: coming back soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and think I think so. you've told me that people camp in there with dogs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the forest is full of camping spots. Well, the one I know is in w- Wingelo. but oh, I, right. I, but. I think Belangelo has one too. I'm not sure about no. Penrose.
0: All oh, right, sure. so more research to be done. But yeah. uh, there are places uh, out there where you can walk your dog in the bush, which is fantastic. It's a nice change from just taking them around the local paths and things. So let's get back to the superb lyrebird bird because they deserve being talked about. Um, b- before I get into it a little bit I should mention because I'll I'll forget otherwise that a good place to go to actually see them in my experience has been to go early
1: to the car park at Fitzroy Falls. Funny you should mention that I think we must have been on the same trip because I remember meeting up with a whole lot of people at some unearthly hour in (laughs) midwinter it was dark or it was almost dark. dark yeah and They were running around the car park.
0: Yeah, so we're not guaranteeing it, listeners. No, no, that that was a couple of years ago. They may have moved their patch, I don't know. Yeah, but, Mm. you know, if you want to increase your chances of actually seeing a lyrebird, then that's the place to go. But what you're much more likely to do is hear a lyrebird, especially at this time of year. This is their mating season, and the males will build within their territory a number of mounds from which they'll perform and we all know that they're fantastic mimics they get up onto their performance mound and they put on this beautiful performance they pull their gorgeous big tail right up over their body and head so that they're almost and then they shake
1: that's right they dance shake 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 like um uh, what are those whirling dervishes? Not <laughs> quite like a whirling, der- but a, the bird equivalent of a whirling dervish. Well,
0: but better than a whirling dervish because they're
1: singing and mimicking at the same time. And so many different birds and uh, sounds—not just bird sounds, but they—they they can mimic. I think um, I was listening to them in Morton National Park because you can go to any lookout on Morton National Park at the moment and just stand quietly. And you will hear them in the gullies. There's no doubt about it. And um, a lot of them seem to be learning the same songs, the same, they're mimicking the same things. And you can isolate what they are, you know. They're very good on curawongs. Yes. Aren't they? Yeah. Um, And then there's this this mechanical sound that they all seem to be really good at making too, which I'm not sure. I don't know what it is. I hope it's not a chainsaw <laughs> I think they do do a chainsaw and when I was um uh traveling, I actually heard someone uh, uh, one of the larbirds was using a um car alarm
0: oh, sound my
1: goodness.
0: <laughs> yeah. So what he does is he dances and performs uh, and hopes that he'll attract a female in. And I heard recently that when he's almost at the end of his little performance, he uh, copies the call of birds panicking, a bird's warning call that indicates to them that a raptor may be around because then the female... Is tempted to rush in under the protection of his feathers, at which point he pounces and has his way with her. That's
1: unbelievable, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean fancy thinking it's that a bit one <laughs> And thereafter, she's she's on her own with it. He's lost interest at that point. She will go off and make her nest, uh, and
1: she'll incubate the egg and chill. The nest is is really hard to find it's like not a cup shaped thing it's um it's a a bundle of twigs stashed into a sort of uh, very often into a sandstone um uh block what would we call that a floater or something like that <laughs> and, and you think uh oh, what is all those twigs doing in that in, in that a little, little cave or crevice, crevice. <laughs> and um You know, you think, well, maybe it's flood damage. And then you think, hang on a minute, we're really quite high up here. There can't be flood damage. And that's the the nest. It, it, It just, unless someone points it out to you, it is really hard. But if you look around, you will have a look to see if you can't find them now and then because they're definitely around here. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. So I just want to tell you my superb Lyobob story. A couple of years ago, I was at Thirlmere Lakes with a group of women and we were watching a beautiful, superb lyrebird just scratching through the uh, leaf litter and so on, quietly looking around for food and just spending its day quietly. And suddenly we saw from across the other side of the lyrebird a fox stalking toward it yeah it was terrible and as we watched the fox got closer and closer until we couldn't stand it any longer and the whole group of us just screamed and the lyrebird screamed and it just shot straight up into a tree it almost levitated itself up into the tree screaming The fox at that point realised that he wasn't going to win that particular battle and he slunk off into the overgrowth, undergrowth. (laughs) But um, it was just sort of horrible for all of us. Uh, we better move on because we've got so many other things that we want to talk about. So uh, up at Picton Fire Trail, one of the things that I see there fairly reliably is uh, the rock warbler, which I know is a bird that you have a special feeling for
1: well only because it's so exciting um there <laughs> was exciting. there was so much concern after the um 1920 fires that the rock warblers which are so specialized in their habitat might be might be going extinct Mm. um, because they only live in New South Wales. They only live in a small region of New South Wales. They only live on sandstone, and apparently they only live on Hawkesbury sandstone. So they're pretty damn specific in where they want Mm. to be. And um, I went to the amphitheatre. I shouldn't really give away the place, but anyhow, (laughs) why not? Um, And I was coming back up, from the amphitheatre and walking up the steps and there is a big, big piece of sandstone that stretches, I think, way into the bush. And I saw what looked like a kind of dull robin. It's sort of that size, sort of that shape and it's sort of dusky, dusky grey-brown. And then, yes, it's got the simony um, breast and... um, belly and i thought well there's only one bird that looks like that and it was a rock warbler and that area was burnt to a crisp oh it was such a hot fire there and it was so good to see that bird Mm. so i went back the next day um same time because you know birds are very much creatures of habit i reckon Mm. that's true and um i saw two Oh, on exactly the same place as you were saying you'd seen one i was thinking oh fine, so well fine. i didn't i don't know if they were a pair but i'm hoping because spring is oh, coming that's fantastic news so, th- so they'll be breeding perhaps yeah hopefully
0: so yeah. to repeat your point these are the only birds that are endemic to new south wales meaning that yes they, they're the only creature as far as i know i could be wrong on that they only live in New South Wales and nowhere else at all and only in very small patches in New South Wales and many people will worry about them coming back after the fires. Yeah. I've also seen recently a family group of them at Cave Creek. I had
1: oh, special, you're showing off now.
0: <laughs> special permission to go into Cave Creek which is closed at the moment. They're doing some works there and hopefully it will reopen soon. So there are a few families of rock warblers around and
1: it's so good to know. Did you go down by the creek? Was that where you saw them? I shouldn't really ask because these <laughs> things are private, I know. But was it by the creek? No. All right, you don't have to say more. I'll find me own. I'll find my own. When it opens, I'll go look. Yeah.
0: Uh, another thing that is showing interest in mating it already is the satin bowerbirds at the moment i haven't seen any bowers but i've seen a lot of satin bowerbird activity and they're hanging around in groups they're all getting very excited, excited yes yeah. they are i i should mention we talked about bread before i've seen someone feeding bread to satin bowerbirds we want this to be an upbeat show we don't want to have you know give people bad news but If you're going to feed birds, please do not feed bread to any of them. This includes ducks. Bread is really not a good food for birds. It um, fills up their bellies and it doesn't provide them with any nutrition at all. And as a result of the full tummy, they don't eat the food that they should be eating. So in a future episode, we'll talk about how to feed birds, what, what are good things to feed birds. But in the meantime, you'll have to wait for that episode. In the meantime, please don't give uh, bread to any birds at all. Another problem with bread is that it can be d- become damp in their mouth and stick to their beaks and cause fungal infections and things in their beaks. There's just nothing good about that. So we're almost out of time, Lou, and we need one more little upbeat story.
1: Do you want to hear about um, what's going on with the cypresses and the the dying... This is not a very happy story, oh, but it's say, a very real story. story. <laughs> uh, oh, you, you must have noticed here in the Southern Highlands, as you drive around, that there, there are lines and lines of trees that have died. There very, are. Yeah. There are, yes. um, we've Tell been trying to get on. to the bottom of, of, of what it is going on. And um, we're doing some, some scientific testing, but um, what we are expecting to find out is that it is basically stress the trees stress. first of all went through a long drought followed by what two or three years of pouring rain non-stop and then we think what happened was a lot of them especially the ones in low-lying areas their roots just sat in water and so oh. they got no oxygen they basically drowned um, and then, to finish them off, uh, came came fungus of various oh, sorts. Right. We're looking at two in particular. There's a fungus that's waterborne called Phytophthora, very very tricky fungus because you can't. You've got to be careful not to move it around. It moves, as I say, in water and up into oh, roots. Dear. And then there is another fungus which we were worried about called cypress canker which um attacks um the trees in the cypress complex of which leylandii is is very much one and you will see a lot of leylandii's and i might talk a little bit more on another episode exactly what the leylandii is because it's a very strange mixture of two genera two big groups brought together Um, and they seem to have been particularly badly attacked.
0: Okay, so Lou, we're running out of time. We've just got a couple of minutes and I asked for an upbeat story at the end. So oh, is, story? There,
1: is there good news in the Cyprus story? Well, um, I don't know about good news so much as um, it's really a, a case of um, what what are we going to plant instead? <laughs> <laughs> you know well if you're dead you're dead but um you know in the future things are going to be a lot different anyhow because of climate change and so we're thinking about um what we could replace them with and there's a lot of really there are a lot of really lovely trees that we could actually we could make our landscape look absolutely beautiful um, by just um, thinking a little bit about these shelter belts and windbreaks and boundary fences, and mm, I think the really future could need? look actually could look very much brighter and happier. <laughs> so there you are. There's my happy new happy story. It's <laughs> so not you happened just, yet. You'll but have it's to going wait to.
0: for another episode to hear how we're going to manage this and what uh, Lou, Lou suggests that we plant mm-hmm. instead. Um, it's very sad about the cypresses <laughs> and I'm sorry I can't give you anything. That's a bit of a, a native buff, on. I'm
1: not I'm not that upset about it. So. <laughs> I mean, I know it's going to be expensive, but you know.
0: Okay, so that's our first episode almost in the can. Thank you everybody to lis- for listening. Thank you very much to Highlands FM hosting us we really appreciate it and thank you in particular to Adam for all the support and advice that he's given us we love you Adam and we really appreciate it. If you would like to write to us and tell us what you're seeing out there in your local area or in the bush if you'd like to tell us some um, any other subjects you'd like us to cover or if indeed you're one of our friends who know stuff and you want to tell us where we got it wrong please email us at flossandloo at gmail.com we look forward to hearing from you and we're already looking forward to making another episode for you in a month's time We'll leave you with a recording that I made recently of a superb lyrebird doing his thing. There are no other birds in this recording, listeners. This is all his own work. Bye bye.
1: Bye now.